Welcome to the American Society of Regional Anesthesia and Pain Medicine, Regional Anesthesia and Pain Podcast, Azra Rap. This is Episode 3. I'm your host, Raj Gupta, with my co-host, Eric Schwenk. Our guests today are Ed Mariano and Anita Gupta. Our topic of discussion is the opioid epidemic and what we can do about it. Welcome to the Azra Rap Podcast. Uh, I am your host, Raj Gupta, with my co-host, Eric Schwenk, and we're here with another episode of a great discussion about uh, pain topics for you. Um, just as a brief introduction, uh, I'm an anesthesiologist at Vanderbilt University, and Eric is an anesthesiologist at Sidney Kimmel Medical College at Thomas Jefferson University. And we have uh, two really amazing guests with us today. Uh, if you guys have noticed, we've come out a little bit late with the podcast this month, and that's partly because we're trying to schedule these important people to come talk to you. And uh, I am going to barely get into how long of a title or introduction I could with both of them because they both have very lengthy credentials. Uh, first, I'm going to introduce Ed Mariano. He's a professor of anesthesiology and perioperative pain medicine at Stanford and is also the chief of anesthesiology at the VA Palo Alto Healthcare System out in California. And our second guest is Anita Gupta, who's an associate professor and vice chair of pain medicine at Drexel University in Philadelphia. She's also the co-chair of the ASA Committee on Prescription Opioid Abuse and advisor to the FDA on anesthetic and analgesics. And again, like I said, both of them have a resume that's much, much longer than that, but I don't want to waste the entire time we have on the show to talk about that. I want to go ahead and start on the topic. So just a quick hello, Eric, Ed, and Anita. How are you guys? And thanks for joining us. Great. Thanks for having me. This is Ed. Thank you, Raj, very much. Anita here. Yeah, this is Eric. Eric, you want to launch off the conversation today? Yeah, I, I was thinking about uh, during the past week how to get things started, and um, with the with the AMA having its uh, it, its annual meeting on uh, at the beginning of June here, I wanted to see what uh, what Ed and Anita thought about uh, the recommendation of pain as a fifth vital sign being dropped, and uh, how effective that may or may not be as it relates to. Uh, curtailing the opioid epidemic that we have. Uh, Ed, do you want to start? Ed, do you want... Sure, sure, I'm happy to. Um, I think that this uh, it coincides very well just because you know, we were in Washington, D.C. just a month or so ago for the ASA's legislative conference, and one, one of the issues, there were several issues that we wanted to bring up with our congressmen and women, but you know, one of them really had a lot to do with um, where I think you know we feel... Congress and our, our government can help us with uh, curbing opioid use and abuse. And I think many of us believe that you know, the um, Fifth Vital Sign campaign may be responsible, at least in part, you know, for you know, not only highlighting you know, the need to treat pain, but also, you know, unfortunately, the, the flip side of that is you know, the, the use of uh, prescription opioids to try to fight pain. I think where we are right now, honestly, um, is not that different, you know, because, you know, when you look at some of the inpatient survey questions, um, you know, we use the HCAPS tool, for example, um, which is used by Medicare and Medicaid, you know, two of the main questions that relate to pain, you know, ask, you know, how often did, you know, the staff do everything they could to help you with your pain? And unfortunately, sometimes, um, you know, the, you know, the analogy of, um, you know, basically trying to obliterate pain 
um, and and prescribing opioids goes together. Yeah, and I you know I agree with you, um, Ed. I think there that. You know what the AMA is putting forward is is very you know interesting. I believe I don't believe that it is really the main issue. I think that unfortunately there's a lot of attention you know on the problem of pain in this country. I think that the vital sign is just a very very small uh, component to the issue, and it really takes away from the real issue on you know the fact that one third of People in the United States have chronic pain and that, you know, there's so much that needs to be done uh, to address, you know, how people are treated with pain, how, how we're actually providing them with comprehensive treatment or if we're doing that at all. And, you know, if we are prescribing opioids, if we're doing that safely and we're providing our patients with, you know, the most uh, imperative information that helps them understand the risks as well as the benefit. So as far as the, the proposal from the AMA uh, um, to remove the fit bottle sign, in my opinion, it's it's a very important conversation, but the conversation needs to expand. Uh, there certainly is so much more that that needs to be talked about beyond that. And and as a physician myself, who takes care of people who have pain, I can tell you that we don't treat the number. Uh, you know, when a patient tells me they have a ten out of ten, we're not treating that, and that's the rule of thumb, as you all may know. You never treat a patient based upon their pain uh, score. You really should treat the patient as a whole. Uh, and encompass all the issues. And, and again, this point of the, the pain score really really undermines the fact that there's so much more that needs to be talked about. And just as a quick follow-up, uh, what, what would you say to uh, somebody like uh, uh, Dr. Lynn Webster, who, who, res- who basically is, is completely opposed to removing uh, pain as a fifth vital sign and, and believes that it's going to lead to patients having pain being undertreated? Is that a, a legitimate uh, response. I think that those are two separate issues. I mean, I I respect Dr. Webster, and he's a, a past president of the American Academy of Pain Medicine. Um, I I agree with some of what he said um, in that article that I read um, in Pain Medicine News, in which you know, he I think that the emphasis on recognizing the disease of pain and just how prevalent it is um, is was one of the uh, I think major advances I think in um, in medical care in the last decade. Um, this is something that um, can't be overemphasized you know, because you know, for so long you know, we consider pain to be a symptom of some other disease. And when um, I think that you know, for um, you know, hundreds of millions of uh, Americans, and not counting the you know, hundreds of millions probably around the world, um, you know, this is a real, real disease in and of itself. Um, I think where the point about you know, moving away from the vital sign, you know, at least from the point of view of the AMA, and then also for many of us that uh, treat acute pain, is I agree with you know, Dr. Kupta that you know, the, the number itself is uh, much less important to me when I'm assessing patients after surgery than you know, how, how well we can manage um, and mitigate what pain does in terms of decreasing patient's recovery. So I'm much more interested in how we can you know, try to better assess pain, the sources of pain, understand you know, where um, pain comes from, and then try to you know, use what we have at our disposal, you know, many, of, many of which are non-opioid, to try to facilitate patient's recovery. So I want to get to a, a question that leads off of that, which is how did we get here in the first place, which is, uh, strikes me as the pain is the fifth vital sign. 
making that or taking that away is sort of implying that uh, physicians and the healthcare system have created the problem by creating this um, numeric scale that should be objectified, and then the H caps on top of that that assess satisfaction scores. Again, trying to quantify this thing that is pain. So, did we create this problem, or is it more complicated than that? And where is the role of the physician? the patient, and I would even add um, maybe even our pharmaceutical companies in all of this that we're facing now. So, Raj, to your question, I, you know, I think it is such an important issue, and, and you know, where, where did this all start? I mean, there's a lot of history um, to this, and, and we know based upon the numbers. I mean, the research has clearly told us that in the 90s there was an acute escalation of the amount of opioids that were being prescribed in the United States. And that's that's clearly, you know, seen all throughout a variety of different literatures uh, and a variety of different um, studies that have looked at how doctors were prescribing. Now, why that has happened and, and what has led to that, I, in my opinion, believe that it is really multifactorial. There's not, it's not just physicians. It is the um, responsibility that is with patients. It's with educators. It's public health officials, federal and state governments. I mean, industry, insurances. I mean, the list goes on and on of what could have led to this. So to blame one particular group would be really um, short-sighted and narrow. I think the problem is so much more deeper than that, and it really is a multi-pronged uh, problem that requires a multi-pronged strategy to resolve, uh, and a lot of stakeholders to ensure that we are addressing this as a really comprehensive problem. I do think, and I totally agree, and I think that I need to make some great points, and yeah, I remember you know, we, we talk a lot about um, you know, how we add value to healthcare, and yeah, there's this great study that you know, I often will cite. It's by uh, Fenton and colleagues. It's published in Archives of Internal Medicine just a couple of years ago, and yeah, they took um, HCAP scores you know, for patient satisfaction and, and looked at you know, other outcomes in terms of, as you can imagine, um, you know, patient-oriented outcomes you know, that may be related um, or not related you know, to HCAP uh, satisfaction scores and. Uh, and maybe not surprisingly for many of us that um, have been on the clinical side, um, but you know, higher patient satisfaction, according to the study, was actually associated with um, higher overall health care and prescription drug expenditures, um, greater inpatient use, and actually increased mortality with all things. So you know, I do think that um, you know, there may be uh, some association with what you suggest, which is you know, I think you know, sometimes you, know, you um, unfortunately, you know, pres- prescribing you know, can sometimes... Um, and be a direct result you know, of you know, some of the demands on patient satisfaction. I do think so. You know, in the perioperative period, what we see is you know, the, it's, it's very easy, and, and historically it's been very easy to prescribe opioids for very, very minor procedures. And I think that that's uh, unfortunately um, a problem that, um, you know, that we live with now. So for things like uh, carpal tunnel release, you know, or having arthroscopic knee surgery, you know, or, you know, same-day hernia repairs, um, you know, it's very common for these patients, you know, to be routinely given, you know, uh, multiple, multiple tablets of opioids, you know, as an outpatient. Right, and, you know, I think that's where part of the problem is, is that there's little understanding on how to prescribe these safely and, and how to do it, do it responsibly, and, and I really do think, even though there are 
multiple people that are contributing or individuals or entities that may be contributing to the issues. I think the solution lies within physicians uh, to take ownership, uh, to, to follow the CDC guidelines, and, and really to be um, proactive in trying to, to mitigate you know, this issue. I mean, really, it's a duty upon all physicians to address it. But haven't we uh, haven't we created a system where there's a lot of short-term gain, um, and not even primary gain, but even sort of an unintentional, con- unconscious gain in going ahead and prescribing a patient who's post-op a 30 days worth of opioids, basically so the patient doesn't have to come back and get a written prescription, the it doesn't require another visit, they don't end up in the ED, and you know it's still one copay, so financially. Um, you're a friend of the patient because you've reduced their cost of care. You're a friend of the patient because you've reduced the number of times they have to come back and visit. And you've become a friend to yourself because you've also reduced the nuisance of having to deal with multiple uh, small prescriptions of opioids, you know, for some patients that are for five days or seven days or ten days. Um, Instead, you can just give them 30 days worth and then they don't have to get a phone call back. Haven't we created a system that encourages that behavior, whether it's conscious or unconscious? I, I think so. Go ahead. No, go, go ahead, Ed. Uh, I was just going to say, just, I, I think that doing the right thing is a lot of work. It is. And, yeah, I, I actually heard, um, and I don't know, I, this, it's, I don't know if you call it the best practice or just a completely uh, yeah, outlying practice, but I heard of one uh, total joint surgeon yeah, you know, that yeah you know, would discharge his patients from the hospital and only prescribe three tablets of Vicodin at a time. Yeah, and he and he told his patients to call me anytime. Yeah, you know, if if it's not enough and you need another refill, I'll call you with another prescription. Um, yeah, you know, I have no problem. Yeah, you know, day or night, and that's what he would do. And yeah, you know, when yeah you know, when he presented his um you know, his patients um you know, pay or opioid consumption data. At a meeting, I mean, it was completely shocking, yeah, you know, like how few tablets these patients take. Um, but at the same time, you know, it's extremely labor intensive. I can't agree with you anymore, Ed. It is to do the right thing, it absolutely is much more work. I mean, in my own patients, I have to do that extra mile, uh, you know, and I ensure that my staff is trained to understand that, you know, we have to be very careful with opioids. We need to understand how to prescribe them. If a patient is calling regarding a question regarding it, you know, we have to be really proactive. And that requires an army of people uh, and an army of training and, and making sure that everyone involved is on board. So I absolutely agree. To do the right thing, it's not easy. Uh, it requires a lot of effort. And I think, you know, we do have a system that unfortunately contributes to this problem. And, and that's what we're all here trying to find those solutions and trying to advocate for, you know, improving those systems so that it doesn't happen and we can prevent some of the problems we're seeing. The only thing I wanted to, uh, to, to add is, is why, why isn't anybody asking why patients are having pain beyond a week or, you know, maybe one to two weeks? I, I mean, it, uh, granted, every patient will recover differently, but you can certainly glean some some information from, uh, from averages and, and there's just no reason that at four weeks after almost any surgery, you should be requiring, uh, you know, really round-the-clock opioids. There's just no reason that uh, surgical pain in, in, in an average patient lasts that long. So we've kind of created a thing where, like you said, that doing a month's worth of opioids um, 
you know is is basically convenient for the prescriber in some ways, but it could end it ends up causing much more harm, and it doesn't even really correlate with what really should be happening in terms of the recovery. Well, I think that yeah, Eric, you're right. I mean, one of the biggest challenges we don't completely understand pain trajectory for for every injury or every surgical um, surgical procedure, and so you know, the um, you know, we we use data you know, sometimes that we have available and we extrapolate. Um, you know, one of the more influential studies that you know, I read was done by Patricia Lavendon in Belgium, and you know, she studied um, a cohort of knee replacement patients just to see what their trajectory was, yeah, and. And not surprisingly, most patients don't go on to have persistent pain. Um, but those patients who do go on to have persistent pain after knee replacement, you know, they tend to have you know, higher pain scores in the acute period, and it takes a lot longer for their pain scores to go down. But what was really interesting was of the patients who developed persistent pain with a neuropathic component, at post-op day five, there was actually an inflection point in which the patient's pain scores went up. And, and this really resonated with me because yeah, on post-op day five, at least in the U.S., yeah, almost all of those patients should be home. And so, yeah, at least in our institution, um, it's normal for the post-operative visit with the orthopedic surgeons to be scheduled at two weeks. And if they go home at post-op day two or three, and at day five, yeah, all of a sudden they have a spike in their pain, yeah, how do you think that presents? Maybe it's that call for yeah, my, my pain medicines aren't really working, or maybe it's when they go to the ER. But I do think that you know, this identifies an area in which you know, there's possibly a care gap. Yeah, and, and to take the point a little bit further, I, you know, I, what I see often is that you know, when I treat patients you know, appropriately and provide them with the multimodal options, um, there's a lot of resistance from insurance. Uh, there's a lot of resistance from uh, patients because it's easy to give a patient a pill. Um, it's much faster and it's much more convenient. Um, but trying to show that there's evidence for the broad range of different treatments that you know we have for pain, it really varies. And, and this adds such a, another layer of complication. Uh, the proof is very limited, for example, for acupuncture or other types of treatment that they're really effective, but oftentimes that is a harder path to travel down for our patients, you know, to ensure that they get the treatment. In fact, you know, this was actually just highlighted in the New York Times just this week on, uh, you know, how new pain treatments, which really aren't new to us, but have really met a lot of resistance from insurances and hospitals to get the patient's alternatives to opioids. And, and they're not always paid for either, so it's a lot of out-of-pocket expense for the patient as well. And I, it makes me wonder that, you know, um, or reminds me of how many times the patients come to me and says, oh, that Neurontin doesn't work for me, or, um, you know, that, that uh, Motrin doesn't do anything for me. I need the stronger stuff. So, I mean, it's a constantly perpetual problem that's it's not just a one-time th- issue and argument and discussion where you can change somebody's mind. It's every time they have a new procedure, every time they have a new pain event, it's re-educating and redoing the whole process all over again. That's right, Roger. I mean, there's definitely so much, so many layers to this issue. And, you know, you could go down the path of talking about how people that come in um, with a history of chronic pain, say, who undergo surgery or have trauma, you know, are we assessing them for emotional or physical 
uh, or um, psychological conditions, you know, and, and oftentimes those are the patients that have the most unremitting pain. And those are things that we're not, you know, we don't always have access to for patients around the time of surgery, but are so critically important that they need to be addressed so that they have a better outcome, so that they don't need that 30-day supply of opioid. Right, that's a great point. I mean, so often, you know, we, when we see patients, you know, uh, at least to prepare them for surgery, you know, they often already have a surgery date. Yeah, and so, you know, that, that train's already on the track and is heading towards the operating room. And you know, the, for some of these patients you know, whom you know, we can already identify as, you know, as either having passed you know, higher, greater than expected pain experiences, you know, catastrophizing like other you know, risk factors, um, I think that you know, those patients may need you know, more preparation in time for surgery um, and maybe more of a, a multimodal preoperative approach you know, that's, a, a better, that's better coordinated um, before the patient actually undergoes surgery. So I wanted to bring up one point that um, that Ed kind of alluded to, which is uh, you, you mentioned Belgium. Um, are, are other countries experiencing the same problem? Are they just catching up to us, or are we just completely different here in the United States? Uh, and why are we different? I mean, I think that you know, the um, if you look at the, just the numbers and the prescribing patterns, I think we know that we're different. I think that if you combine uh, the United States and Canada, I think that, I mean, I'm sure Anita knows this much better than I do, but I, I, I think that we're over 90% of the world's opioids prescribed here in North America. Is that, is that about right? That's right. I mean, I mean, the majority of the world, we, we get the most, and and it's not seeming to slow down as much as we're trying, and, and that's what's, you know, what, what's really alarming about this issue. But, I mean, we just said that it takes a whole team of people, lots of manpower, lots of effort, lots of discussions and conversations. I can imagine that in many countries, they don't invest that hard in preventing this from happening. Are we just dealing with a past crisis that we now are trying to fix? Or is that going to be how we have to deal with it moving forward as well with new patients? What, again, my question is, is what's different about us? I mean, you know. I think in the beginning, I mean, oh, go ahead. No, no, I, you know, personally, I, I believe that if you look at different societies and different countries, they don't have the, the, the state-of-the-art healthcare system that we have in the United States. And they don't have access to pain medications. They don't even have access to physicians. So to, to really get the kind of treatment we're getting is not always available to them. In fact, you know, people that are in third-world countries don't even have the option of getting opioids because they don't have the supply. So it's, it's a matter of access. You know, we, we have our, you know, constituents in the United States, we all have wonderful access to health care, even though we're still having trouble getting it to everyone. But compared to the world, we're, we're really way beyond that. And I think that's part of the issue why the United States has this epidemic. Uh, it's also a cultural, societal, you know, uh, belief that we're entitled to a certain amount of treatment. And it's very different if you go outside the United States to see, you know, how other people are being treated with no opioids in many, many circumstances with surgery. It's fascinating. I mean, I think that uh, for, for all the uh, issues uh, you know, that we have with uh, U.S. healthcare and, you know, all of the different um, proposals we've discussed in the past and their current experiences, 
experiencing, um, I think that any patient anywhere who suffers an injury can walk into an emergency department and not get turned away. Um, I think that that's you know, one of the great things you know, that we have you know, here in the U.S., you know, but at the same time, um, you know, we also have um, a very low threshold you know, to prescribe uh, you know, pain medication you know, for, you know, and, and, and strong pain medications, opioids, you know, for, for maybe uh, what is not necessarily um, you know, an injury that requires it. So I want to get into, um, as we kind of wind down this episode, I want to talk about um, what is, uh, obviously we've talked a little, and I think most people know what the ramifications of this opioid epidemic are and how much harm it's causing. But if, uh, as Anita suggested, we as physicians are going to be the change agents for this, um, what's our low-hanging fruit? What's our first steps to really make an impactful difference um, for you know, our one-on-one relationships with our patients, but also contributing to policy changes and changing that cultural awareness. Where do we, where do we go from here? I think we said it a little bit earlier. It's just, it's, it's a lot of work. It's going to take a lot of, um, a lot of time, a lot of individual effort from people who really are willing to work together. And um, Friday afternoon, you know, I, I, I just came back from you know, doing a visiting professor, and I, I came to work because we had a meeting, and I had one of our head orthopedic surgeon, his staff, you know, our head of ambulatory care, who runs all of our primary care clinics, and myself and a couple of my staff who run our acute pain service and our surgical home. And we're trying to rack our brains and figure out like how we can um, do better than what we're doing. Um, and specifically, the topic was trying to decrease uh, opioid prescribing. You know, one of the things you know, we we focused on you know, on two main areas. You know, one was you know, I, the patient who is already on uh, higher dose opioids, long acting opioids, um, who is being prepared for surgery, and then also you know that that treatment gap between the acute care in the hospital you know, and the subacute recovery period. You know, just talking about some of the pain trajectory stuff we were talking about earlier, um, and. It's not easy because I think that one of the main issues that you know, our head of primary care brought up was just you know, that you know, even um, even within one service, you know, the prescribing patterns can be highly variable. You know, it's very likely that you know, that two people you know, for the same same t- same patient you know, who has a normal operative course will prescribe differing amounts of opioids. I think that's probably the lowest hanging fruit that we have is really just to try to standardize how much we give, and for how long we prescribe. I agree with you completely, Ed. I think those are very important points. Uh, You know, as far as my thoughts, you know, I really think that we need to collectively work together to solve the problem, and and that's what we're doing today uh, by talking about it. I think on a day-to-day, if, if you're a physician somewhere in a local community hospital, you know, advocate for better prescribing standards, advocate for better patient support uh, when it's not occurring, and, and make sure you educate your peers, your colleagues, staff about how to use medications safely, how to make sure that patients don't end up in a critical situation where they may overdose um, advocate for naloxone in conjunction with any opioid that will be on if they're taking for a prolonged period of time. I think those are some of the things that any physician can do. I, I think that's part of just being a physician and, and you know maintaining a duty to, to want the best for their patients. 
And how about just like a, a, a truly evidence-based discussion sometimes on some of the non-opioid agents I think is reasonable. I mean, take uh, non-steroidals, uh, for example. I mean, I can't tell you how much resistance to get from uh, much many of the different surgical fields where I am and into giving uh, non-steroidals, and that takes out a significant uh, non-opioid multimodal agent that you have in, in your arsenal if you're, if you're taking that off the table. And, and oftentimes it's based on uh, false information. Information and sometimes we're the ones who, who are most up to date with that. So, so bringing that discussion out, I think, is uh, probably worthwhile too. So, I'm going to throw a little uh, grenade in the end of this conversation. So, um, so what about medical marijuana? Um, that's gaining a lot of traction here. Is that the a solution to this problem, or is it going to contribute to this problem? Um, we've seen heroin. Uh, be sort of the surrogate for opioids when patients can't get the opioids that they want because of restrictive prescribing practices. And so they've turned to the cheaper and often more accessible heroin, uh, which is growing in rapid popularity. Is medical marijuana a better substitute than heroin? Is it a better substitute than opioids? Or is it just going to make the problem worse? Um, Does anybody know? Do we have any data on that? I will. Well, I agree. Uh, that is a grenade. Yeah, I'll, which is why I'll let him answer first. <laughs> You're call. in California, right? Didn't they just vote for medical? I mean, they've had medical marijuana for a while out in California, right? It's 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 approved for medicinal medicinal purposes only. Um, but I don't want to cut off Anita, so I want to hear what she has to say. <laughs> I was just saying this is a grenade as well. Um, medical marijuana, the advocates for it, really, you know, they've presented some compelling patient stories. I mean, especially for people who have chronic pain or epilepsy or, you know, stress, you know, post-traumatic stress. I mean, there's really a lot of interesting stories that we hear, and I know you all have as well. But, you know, my argument is like, look, you know, there are so many treatments that we don't have clear evidence for. And in particular, medical marijuana, there's really not a whole lot of you know, randomized clinical trials or strong evidence that it works for chronic pain patients. And I think that by advocating for research on it, we'll get those answers, but it's going to take time. So I don't think we're there yet. I think it's too early to say, but the potential is real. And, and, you know, I I hear the stories and, you know, I'm hopeful that medical marijuana in conjunction with maybe all the other treatments that we need more research on could provide better care. Yeah, I think that, you know, I used to work down at University of California, San Diego, and some of the clinical research on uh, medical marijuana uh, as a uh, as an analgesic you know, have, have been done there. And, yeah, I'd say that I, I agree with you know, Anita that I don't think that we're really at a place where we can um, make uh, sweeping recommendations. I'll say for my own patients, you know, when they ask you know, in the, in, during the preoperative workup, you know, I already take this for something else. Yeah, do you recommend that I stop versus continue? I always recommend that they continue. Yeah, but I don't initiate anyone, but I don't you know, recommend that they stop, you know, they cease it either. Eric, you have a thought on that? Uh, <laughs> I don't really I don't I don't really have any uh particularly strong uh opinion one way or another. Um I'll just leave it there. <laughs> You know, I'll make one last comment, which is that I, th- I think that if we took the stigma away from it and just treated it as another drug, if somebody came out with a new drug and said, hey, this is a good drug that might help with pain, and like Anita said, if we started just researching it and looking at it objectively, um, 
we could make some reasonable decisions about where it might fit into a multimodal strategy, where it might be appropriate. Do you need to stop it? Do you need to continue it? Those kinds of decisions. Unfortunately, marijuana has gotten such, it's so loaded with um, this societal uh, guilt and pressures uh, from decades of campaigning against it that I think that it's so hard to just treat it as science and uh, treat it as another option that may be useful for some patients. And if we flip-flopped the stigma, like we're now getting a stigma with opioids, um, and we flip-flopped that with marijuana, uh, you know, and somebody tried to introduce opioids now as a new thing, we would all consider it a dangerous medication, but we give it willy-nilly. And I think that a lot of uh, what uh, we've all been talking about here, which is the the social norms uh, in our society about what is acceptable and what is not acceptable, is a major factor in how we can move forward. Is addressing a lot of these things. I don't know if medical marijuana is better than opioids. I don't know if it's good for people. I think that just like Anita said, we have to kind of take the stigma away and just study it and see is it good. Maybe it's good in certain circumstances, but not every one of them. Any last comments before we wind down the conversation today? I just want to second uh, everything Raj said. I mean, thanks a lot for for coming on the podcast, guys. You guys had a, a lot of good stuff to say, and uh, your expertise is definitely appreciated for all the listeners. Well, you guys have done a great job with the podcast, and it's been a really, I think, a fantastic resource for people, and it's nice to just hear real conversations you know, amongst people who are just trying to do their best. So I want to thank you guys for the invitation. I, I would like to also agree with that. Thank you all so much. I think this is such an important issue, uh, and I, I really am passionate about it, and I'm, I'm happy to, to be part of this and trying to get the message out there for better care. So, Ed, how do people? what's the best place people can find you? Because you do a lot of great work on social media and online. So what's the best place for people to find you? Um, I have a, I have my own uh, blogs that I run on my own website. It's just my name, edmariano.com. Uh, you can also follow me on Twitter, uh, emarianomd. Um, but you can also find me anywhere else yeah, because uh, you'll see me at the meetings. Yeah, I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm also fortunate to be on the board, and yeah, and I like to walk around a lot, and I like to talk to people yeah, who have a lot of questions about how to take care of their patients. So, um, so I hope that you know, when if people see me, that they feel comfortable just coming up and saying hi. Yeah, I can definitely agree. Ed is a very approachable person and always ready to have a nice conversation. So definitely go say hi to him. And then Anita, where can people find you? Yes, ditto. I'm on Twitter as well, and uh, I'll see you at the meetings for sure. What's your Twitter handle again? It's Doc, D-O-C, Anita Gupta. Okay, great. And uh, Eric, what's your Twitter handle again one more time? E. Schwank, M.D. Awesome. So it's E-S-C-H-W-E-N-K-M-D. And I'm uh, Dr. Underscore Raj Gupta on Twitter, and you can find me there. And uh, you can look us up on the Azra website, azra.com, or follow us on iTunes. If you guys like what you hear, please review us on iTunes. Tell your friends about us, and we'd love to get more people listening and talking about these topics. Uh, we're hopefully going to try to do this once a month. It's difficult to get these uh, great people on, but we will keep fighting that fight and trying to get good people on for you guys. So until next time, uh, thanks for listening, and uh, we'll talk again soon. Okay.